Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading tonight is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1, and can be found on page 1065 in the Bibles um, from the church. So we're reading from John chapter 3. And beginning at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Heather. Do keep that passage open 
in front of you. But before we have a look at it together, would you join me to pray? Father, it is with a sense of fear and trepidation uh, that we uh, dare to open your word and dare to um, teach it. And so, Lord, with a posture of humility, we pray that uh, the preacher would quickly disappear, but that you would speak. And Lord, we're also taught that when we gather in your name, there is a sense in which we, we should come with expectation because this is your word and your desire is that you would speak to us. So we pray that you would help us come with humble posture, but also with ears to listen. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien met in university, and they enjoyed more than a 40-year-long friendship, which led, of course, to those famous books that I'm sure many of us have read, as, such as Narnia and The Lord of the Rings. And actually, it was um, Tolkien's friendship that led to uh, C.S. Lewis's conversion. And uh, C.S. Lewis's biographer writes, On the 19th of September, 1931, Lewis and Tolkien talked until after 3 o'clock in the morning. And a few days later, Lewis wrote to an old friend saying, I have just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Jesus, in Christianity. My long night talk with Tolkien had a great deal to do with it. Like Nicodemus, Lewis had his night filled with light and his life changed radically. That's what the biographer wrote. Now, not every story of someone becoming a Christian is quite as dramatic. But with every conversion, there is a dramatic work of transformation. And the passage before us this evening, it's familiar, isn't it? The story of Nicodemus. John chapter 3 is the most comprehensive chapter in the Bible that explains new birth. It asks and answers this very important question. How do I become a Christian? It also invites those of us who are Christians to ask, are we living in the light of this magnificent, wonderful, glorious work of salvation? Or are we still living as those in darkness? So we meet Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 1. And Jesus, we see, has caught the attention of one of the leading figures in Jewish society, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, which was a, a, leading, so a, a leading religious authority, Nicodemus was, with, with huge religious and political influence. And we see here that Jesus has left Nicodemus confused. You see, Nicodemus had witnessed, like many, the miracles or signs, verse 2, that Jesus is doing. And he's intrigued. He has questions. Now, before we press on, we should just probably back up a moment. Now, you'll recall, I hope, at the end of last week's sermon, where we were thinking about what it meant for the people in Jesus' day to really believe in him. It was not just, you see, believing in a few signs or, or miracles that they liked. You know, everyone likes a prophet who turns water into wine, don't they? No, it has to, be, has to be more than that, a deeper 
belief. You see, ultimately, it's believing in the sign of the cross, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately, the demands that that sign places on our lives. To take up our cross and follow Jesus, it is belief that leads to a radical transformation of our lives. And you'll remember that Jesus says at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, that he knows who really believes, because he's the one who knows every person. He doesn't need a character testimony, for he knows what's in every heart. And what we see now in the coming chapters is that Jesus enters into a number of conversations in which he'll instantly gets to the heart of individuals. We'll look this evening at the conversation that he has with Nicodemus, and then in a few weeks, we'll look at the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, and then the Gentile official. And we'll see that Jesus gets to the heart of a whole range of individuals with different needs and from highly diverse backgrounds. So we start then with Nicodemus. At the beginning there of chapter 3, verse 1, is the word now. And that connects uh, this narrative with the preceding chapter. The idea is that Nicodemus exemplified those who believe in Jesus, but don't really believe in Jesus. So what we see is that Jesus will not entrust himself to Nicodemus, at least Not yet. See, Nicodemus is a great story of growing faith. In a few chapters, he's speaking up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin. In John chapter 7, verse 45 to 52. By the end of the book, you know, he's there at Jesus' side at Calvary. In John chapter 19, verse 38 to 42. It's right, and I'm... Sure, you would agree for me to ask you, do you have faith in Jesus, but not wholehearted commitment to him? Now, if you're honest enough to answer yes, then you may find a friend here in Nicodemus. And in verse 2, we see that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. It's altogether clear why Nicodemus visits Jesus at night. I guess the best clue may lie in the way that John uses the word night in other parts of the gospel. So if you look at John chapter 9 verse 4 and John chapter 11 verse 10, there's no need to turn this evening, but if you look there, the word night is actually used to speak of spiritual blindness. Well, quite honestly, it may simply be that Nicodemus came under the cloak of darkness so not to be seen. Now, he may have been slightly nervous who would see See him with Jesus. I mean, only a week or so ago, Jesus was, uh, was causing trouble, wasn't he? He was upsetting his, his priestly friends with the behavior that he was, conducting, the way he was conducting himself in the temple. And Nicodemus, quite honestly, might not want to be seen with Jesus. It might be as simple as that. You know, we simply don't know why Nicodemus comes by night. But what is certain, however, is that his own night was darker than he knew. You know, Nicodemus may have been wary of being seen, but he comes, we see, showing respect. There, verse 2. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. 
And Nicodemus represents the sort of morally upright in society. Those of us who are slightly better than others because, you know, because of their background or their education or their good manners. He'd be perfectly at home with us this evening. Yet this man, Nicodemus, who has everything to lose if he's caught with Jesus, comes and calls Jesus rabbi, which is a term of respect. He knows in his heart that he is a teacher who has come from God. You know, my prayer this evening as I was preparing to preach and to teach, my prayer is that there is someone here who comes cautiously but with honesty to find out more about this man called Jesus. And what is it about Jesus? What is it about his teaching that grabs the attention of so many people? This is what Nicodemus is wondering. But he's in for a surprise, and you may be too. In verse 3 there we see, Jesus speaks first to Nicodemus of the need for a radical change. Now, strictly speaking, Nicodemus has not yet asked Jesus anything. He just said, verse 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for who else could perform those miracles? He's not actually asked Jesus a question. He's made a statement. But Jesus knows by those opening words, Nicodemus is really asking, who are you? We know that you are a teacher from God, but are you more? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus' reply here is rather abrupt. It's similar, actually, in sentiment to the end of chapter 2. Jesus is wary of entrusting himself to Nicodemus' flattery. And Jesus replies, verse 3, Very truly I tell you, or I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Jesus' words here are more than a reply to an implied question. Who are you, Jesus? His reply is saying to Nicodemus, I know you are here to make an assessment of me, but how dare you? Are you really qualified to do that, Nicodemus? See, Nicodemus, have you noticed here, he claims to see something special in Jesus because of the miracles. And Jesus replies, you can't see anything of who I really am, Nicodemus, unless you are born again. You see, it seems that Nicodemus has assumed that Jesus is bringing new wisdom, new enlightenment. And Jesus is saying, no, no, this is not what I am about. You see, every other teacher of every other religion came as a teacher. Zoroaster. Confucius, Muhammad, the Buddha. And they said, here is the way to God. Follow it. And you may well have made the same assumption as Nicodemus. You're here this evening. You're even wondering whether I should join this Hope Explored class. You've come along this evening and you're here for the teaching. But did you know this? You know, as Christians, we're not here for Jesus' teaching alone. We're primarily here for life. Jesus 
is also not about moral reform. Every other religious founder says, do this and do that and you will be a new person. But Jesus says, no, you can't reform yourself. No more so than a dead person can dress themselves. But the Bible says, if we are not Christians, we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in verse 3, I'm not about the teaching. I'm not about the moral reform. I'm not about reformation. I'm about something far more radical than that. I am about transformation. You must be born again. And you'll hardly find a more radical expression than you must be born again. And it's really important. And Jesus says it three times in these verses. George Whitfield, that great 18th century preacher. And uh, he, he preached on these verses, you must be born again, over 100 times. And when asked why he kept preaching on you must be born again, he replied... Because you must be born again. And this is why Jesus here is so emphatic. Jesus is saying to him, it's not more teaching you need, Nicodemus. It's life. It's a heart transplant by which God enables you to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, it's probably just worth keeping in mind uh, as we look at this passage this evening that this is not actually a sort of an ordinary conversation between Jesus and a regular Jewish citizen. You see, Nicodemus is a respected Old Testament scholar. So when Jesus talks to him, he's assuming a level of, I suppose, mutual theological knowledge. That's why Jesus casually slips in the phrase there in verse 3, kingdom of God, without any explanation. And you may be like me when you come to this passage, certainly when I was looking at this week, I found myself wondering, what would a first century theologian understand by the term kingdom of God from the Old Testament? What did Nicodemus hear when Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God? And the concept actually lies in the promise that King David's line would be everlasting, that his heir would reign on Israel's throne forever. So to a Jew with the background and convictions of Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom at the end of the age. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you can only experience eternal resurrection life if you're born again. And this is startling. See here, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, a respected and a conscientious member of not only Israel, but of the Sanhedrin, that he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now Jesus is saying that not even a man of Nicodemus' standing with all his good deeds and works could enter eternal life without a radical transformation. And let me stress here that the word unless is categorical here. You see, it's not unless you are a better person, you will not see heaven. It's not unless you give up your selfish ways, you will not enter the kingdom. It's unless 
you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And Jesus' words in verse 3 mark the unraveling of all that Nicodemus stood for, lived for, and had taught throughout his academic life. Here is a morally upright man, but Jesus is saying that is not enough. And that leaves Nicodemus paralyzed. And Nicodemus, understandably, is puzzled. Understandably, he seeks clarification about this radical change. And Jesus makes it clear that it's a change brought by the Spirit of God. So he's spoken of radical change. He next speaks of supernatural change. Now, on one occasion, Charlie Chaplin. Do we know Charlie Chaplin? I hope we do. If we don't, ask your parents afterwards. Charlie Chaplin. Now, he was a well-known silent movie comic. And uh, one day, Charlie Chaplin, he met Albert Einstein. I'm sure you've all heard of Albert Einstein. And Chaplin said to him, people love me because they can understand what I do. They love you because they can't understand anything you do. You know, we love, don't we? Don't we love the Lord Jesus for so, so, so many reasons. 10,000 reasons as we were singing about this morning. So many reasons. But one of the reasons we love Christ is because he was willing at his father's request to take on flesh, to leave the comfort of heaven, to become, to become a man, to become a human being, to make understandable to us the nature and work of God. And he helps answer our questions about life and, and death. And Nicodemus, he needs help here. And in verse 4, he asks the first of his two questions. And to help answer each question, Jesus is a great teacher, isn't he? He doesn't just answer it. He gives an accompanying picture with each uh, answer to the question. And Nicodemus' first question then we see there in verse 4 basically is, how does new birth work? See that verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Now, Nicodemus, you know, he may well have come showing uh, respect, but this does not mean that the old academic is still not an argumentative soul. It goes with the trade, doesn't it? Jesus interrupted him abruptly earlier, and Nicodemus now replies in kind to Jesus with a crassly, literalistic interpretation of what Jesus said as a way of expressing a certain degree of scorn. Well, there at the second part of verse 4. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You can see the wry smile with which he says that. Now, whatever the posture, the tone, or the nature of, or the degree of Nicodemus' misunderstanding, Jesus here sets to, to restate his challenge in a slightly different form there, verse 5. And he also unpacks what he means in verse 6 to 8. So look at verse 5. Jesus replies, he answers, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So it gives him a little bit more. Now Jesus maybe I don't know, maybe feeling a little bit exasperated with Nicodemus, but he doesn't show it. Instead, he appeals to his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. Now look, Nicodemus, let me try and explain. Here is the key to understanding what I mean by, by being born again. It is to be born of water and spirit. Now surely you get it now, don't you? 
And Nicodemus, I imagine, he's no doubt, isn't he? He's working through his memory bank. And if I was in his shoes, I'd be absolutely panicking being cross-examined by Jesus. I misunderstood the first point. Now I'm probably just as confused. And he's probably thinking about Old Testament scriptures as he's listening to Jesus talk about giving birth, about children and how does this relate to water and spirit. And he'd be asking, wouldn't he, what, what, what does Jesus have in mind? Surely I, I would imagine that the idea that, uh, that Israel was called God's son back in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 provided at least a little background for the notion of God begetting people. Far more important, though, is the Old Testament background to, to water and spirit. Although it seems to me that Nicodemus probably didn't make the connection. But for our sakes, let me, let me try and explain that to the best of my limited understanding. So the spirit is God's principle of life. We see this, don't we, even in creation. And many sort of Old Testament writers, they, they look forward to a time when God's Spirit would be poured out on humanity. You can look at different prophets, and one example would be Joel chapter 2, verse 28. You can see that later, that the Spirit of God will be poured out. And with that, there comes a promise that there will be an inner renewal that cleanses God's people from their idolatry and their disobedience, their sin. Spirit will be poured out, and then there'll be... Uh, forgiveness for sin. That's what we talk about when we, when, when, with the use of the Spirit. And then when water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it generally, it generally refers to, to renewal or, or cleansing, especially when it's found in conjunction with the Spirit. Now, the best example of this, you're going to have to, you're gonna, I want you to play with me and come with me on this because this is, this is important. The best example of this is Ezekiel chapter 36, okay? So I want you to turn to page 868 and I want you to look at verse 25 to 26. You see, when water speaks of cleansing from impurity, where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit depicts the transformation of, of heart. So let, let, me, let me read these together, okay? Ezekiel 36, 25 to 26. I will, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Okay, that's the cleansing bit. And then I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. All right? Turn back to John. See, what we've got here is a wonderful example in an Old Testament scripture that points to what Jesus is talking about. See, to be born of water and spirit is to receive the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of our hearts. And yet, it would appear that Nicodemus, with all his great learning, had not thought of those Old Testament passages in this way. This way of thinking is all new to him. And Jesus can't help himself there in verse 10, when he rebukes the limits of his academia. And you are Israel's teacher, the one who teaches the people about life and death, and you do not understand these things. Shame on you, Nicodemus. Now, we don't know the particular situation or the circumstances concerning Nicodemus. It may be that he, quite frankly, was too confident in his own self, in his own understanding, in his own ability, in his own obedience to think he needed much in terms of repentance, let alone to have his whole life cleansed and his heart transformed to be born again. 
But Jesus is adamant. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, humans, that's flesh, gives birth to human life, but only the Holy Spirit can give birth to spiritual life. Verse 7, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, in the first week and the first sermon on this series, remember back to beginning of chapter 2 of John, we, we reminded ourselves that new wine points to purification of sins through Jesus' blood. And then last week, we, we saw how Jesus is the new temple, the center of true worship. And this evening, the Apostle John gives us in all its rich, its rich detail, Jesus' exposition of new birth. And so what we've got... It's really important to kind of grasp this, I guess. In these early chapters of John's gospel, Jesus, what he's doing here is fulfilling a lot of what the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. The old has gone and the new has come. But Jesus still needs to answer Nicodemus' question. How does this new birth work? What are the mechanics? And he uses the picture of wind. Now, I don't know about you, I've been sitting here and I'm just, I can hear there's a storm out there, isn't there? And the wind might rise at any moment. We might actually get a feel for the wind when it blows. You know, just before a storm? You know, there's something, isn't there, deeply mysterious about wind. And verse 8, we read there, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, let me say, um, we lived at, for five years in Florida, and I'm sure most, if not all of us know, it's known as the hurricane state. And when you encounter firsthand, which we did in our first year, a tropical storm, it gives you a healthy respect for the power of the wind blowing. When you see palm trees bent double, and cars overturn, it gives you a healthy respect for the power of wind blowing. It can't be controlled, and it is unpredictable. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that new birth is God's work. He is the agent of the wind. It has a supernatural origin. That just as the wind can catch us out, so when the, the Spirit of God is blowing in our lives, we cannot control it. It will catch us off guard. It will convict us, convict us of sin. It will turn our lives upside down. It will bring new life. Now, as I've said, this is a discussion between Old Testament scholars. And it may have already left Nicodemus behind. But as you read these verses of the wind blowing and bringing life, you find yourself, well, at least I did, thinking there may be an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 37. We've already seen that water and spirit birth is grounded in Ezekiel 36. But I think it's hard to dispense with the thought that Jesus has in mind the next chapter of Ezekiel as well. And we know the story, don't we? It's one of those stories that we, we learned very early in, in Sunday school if we, if we grew up in Christian homes. Uh, we know, don't we, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. And there you'll remember the Sovereign Lord says to those bones, I will breathe on you. Or literally, in the Hebrew, 
I will breathe wind into you and you will come to life. You see, as the Lord breathes, there is a rattling sound and the bones come together, bone to bone. Then the Lord breathes again and tendons and flesh appear. Then the Lord breathes again and people get up on their feet and come to life. It's a picture of new spiritual life. So how does new birth work? It comes with the Holy Spirit power of a storm. That brings life from death. See, this is Jesus' answer to the first of Nicodemus' questions. Jesus is saying it's like that with everyone born of the Spirit. Have you experienced something of the truth of this? You know, you may be here uh, this evening with someone who is a Christian. And quite honestly, you wonder what it is that makes this person a Christian. Is it their intellect? No. Is it being religious? Well, you'll soon work out it's not that either. It's not even their morality. You see, we can't work it out because it hasn't come through human effort. It's God's work. Now that is devastating for a self-sufficient intellectual like Nicodemus. Probably it is for all of us. You see, unless God gives us new birth, we won't see the kingdom of God. And you can imagine Nicodemus responding. You know, oh look, all this is absolutely fascinating, Jesus, but, but how can I experience this for myself? You see, Nicodemus really is a man who wants to go to heaven, to live in a way that pleases God. So Jesus speaks of a radical change, of a supernatural change, and now he speaks of life-giving change. Now yesterday, um, I, we had the opportunity to, uh, to climb Mount, Mount Tor, as I was saying uh, this morning. And then on the way home through uh, Castleton, we came across a convoy of vintage cars. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, I was thinking, it prompted me to think about a story that I came across a number of years ago about a wealthy gentleman who many, many, many years ago bought a car. And actually, he was the, the first person in, in, his, in his village uh, to own a car. They'd not been invented that long. And, uh, and instead of, uh, so he, he sort of bought this car. And then you'd expect him to kind of switch the engine on. But instead of doing that, instead of doing that, he, he, he actually um, put the, 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 the gear stick in neutral. And he arranged uh, for, for people to push him in the car. It was only quite a small village. And, and so he'd be pushed up and down the high street. Quite peculiar, I suppose. And the story goes um, that on one occasion he was asked, you know, quite honestly, you know, is there any power in the car? To which he replied, yes, there is power in it, but I'm afraid to turn it on. See, it's when you switch the engine on in the car that the car comes to life. And in the context of our passage, of course, until you are born again, the car is just an empty shell without an engine. 
So Nicodemus then has asked his first question, and it may have been crass, it may even have been flippant, but Jesus has answered him straight. Sadly, I fear, uh, as we see from verse 10, Nicodemus is none the wiser. I think it's probably fair to say that the Old Testament allusions went straight over his head. But nevertheless, I'd like to think in Nicodemus's second question in verse 9, there is less of the argumentative scholar and more of the desperate seeker. Verse 9, how can this be? How can this happen? Or even, how can I believe? And we see here that Jesus is long on patience and gives Nicodemus a picture from the Old Testament he is sure to understand, verses 14 and 15. At least he gives this picture after first explaining why he, Jesus, of all people, knows what he is talking about and his words can be believed because verse 11, 12, and verse 13, he comes from heaven so he knows how to get to heaven, how to get to the new creation. And Jesus gives Nicodemus an answer to his question with a picture from his own learning. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now again, this will be a familiar story, I'm sure to many of us. Jesus here is referencing that terrifying story of the Israelites' rebellion when they turned their back on God in the desert and snakes subsequently came into the camp, poisoning many. Uh, And one of the questions I've been pondering this week, and I think it's just worth asking, is why would God allow venomous snakes into the camp of Israel? Now, I don't think we know for certain But I found myself wondering this week if it's his way, if you like, of showing them that there was a a far more, um, that there was a venom in their souls, I guess, that was far more destructive than any venom that could come into their bodies. This is sort of God's way of showing the Israelites that they must deal with with the venom in their own hearts, their sin and their rebellion against God. And we know, don't we, what happens when you're bit by a poisonous snake. What happens is that you're rapidly overcome with a fever. And then what follows is convulsions, followed then by an unquenchable thirst. And then if it's not treated, you'll lay there dying. And you can imagine a camp full of people who who are literally lying there. They can't even move. And what the Israelites were told is, you don't need to move, you just need to look. Look up at the brass snake on the pole and believe. Just look and you will be healed. And we read there, verse 14, and just as Moses lifted up the brass snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So here here is Jesus' answer to Nicodemus' second question. How do I believe? How do I believe? Just look. Just look to the Son of Man hanging on that cross and believe. Now you may ask, you know, why did Jesus liken himself to a brass snake on a pole? Of course, there is the, the lifting up and the, the looking part. But I want to suggest this evening that there's something more going on here. And maybe this is the most important part of this story. Maybe this is the most important thing we need to grasp this evening. See, Jesus is showing us that the very thing 
that brings about our death will bring about our life. You see, as the Israelites looked at the snake on that pole, they saw what was bringing them death, and it gave them life. And as we look at the cross, we see our sin, which is bringing us death. We see, don't we, our sin hanging on that cross. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be our sin, so that we may become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So when we look at the cross, we see our sin, the thing that would bring us death. But as we look at the cross, we also see Jesus who is bringing us life. We lift up our eyes and we see the one who is the giver of life. Well, our time, our time has gone. And in this final section, verse 16 to 21, we have here the most famous verse in all the Bible. It's already been referenced this evening. And John then gives a commentary on the wonderful plan of salvation. He shows how new birth is rooted in love. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then we may be sitting here this evening, and quite honestly, we have been born again. But we're a little bit like the person pushing his car with the engine switched off. We're living like the world. We're, we're discouraged because there are things in our life that don't seem to change. And we've, we've given up trying to change. We've given up on ourselves. So let me ask a question as we finish. Have you forgotten what is inside you? The key is in the ignition. You need to pray and turn the key of the engine of faith. What happens to Nicodemus? Well, in the beginning, he doesn't see the kingdom. But by the end, when Jesus' disciples have departed from him, have deserted him, and Jesus has been cut down from the cross, and, and any association with Jesus could cost you your life, Nicodemus is the one who takes the body and brings it to the tomb. And what brought him to the place where he didn't mind endangering his own life, didn't care anymore about his own reputation? Let me tell you what has happened. He had seen with his very own eyes the Son of Man lifted up on that cross. And his night had been filled with light. And his life had been radically changed. My dear, dear friend, have you looked at the cross? Have you seen your Savior hanging there? Look to him. Trust in him. Put your faith in him.
You know, whether you're like a, a C.S. Lewis, a, a skeptic, or a Nicodemus, you're a morally good person. We're all ultimately in the same position, with the same poison and the same need of new birth. Why not step from the land of the dying into the land of the living tonight? Look to Jesus on that cross and believe. Amen. Well, as the musicians come up, would you join me for a prayer? Before I pray, would you do me the kindness? Many of you this evening will go and you'll get back in your car. And when you, before you, you turn the engine on, remind yourself, and as you turn the engine on this week, for all of us will drive in a car this week, have you forgotten what is inside of you? Turn the engine on. Let the power of the Spirit come again in a fresh wave. That He will meet you in your brokenness. He will give you new life. Father, we do just thank you for your word. We thank you for the patience and the kindness and the gentleness of Jesus. Even though at times he's exasperated with us, how he gives us his word to teach us. And so this evening we come, wherever we are, whatever position we're in, and we ask that you would give us a sense and a desire prompted by your spirit to luck. Rejuvenate within us new life, we ask in your name. Amen.